I was corrected earlier from someone who's, I don't think, here this evening. Yes, it is chasm, not chasm. You know, I'd like to blame it on my heritage and where I'm from, but, or my German. Sometimes that comes out in the way I say things. But I don't know what the problem was, but it is chasm, not chasm, so... I've said worse, so have you. So we're going to 2 Peter. 2 Peter for our study. That's where we're going to start this evening. And Lord willing, we will continue on until we are finished with 2 Peter. <clears throat> okay, so turn there, 2 Peter chapter 1. And look through here. I'm going to give a little background give a little outline, and then we're going to get right into a couple of verses this evening. We see that there are the three chapters of 2 Peter. The headings of the third chapter is, we will find, as we see there in chapter 3, the purpose of this letter. Look at that. This is the second letter I'm writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand, this is chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Indeed, the purpose of the letter we have a little bit there in chapter 3. Let me pray, and then we will get into the study for this evening. Father, we look to you. God, I look to you, and I pray that you would help me to accurately present your word this evening as we look at the background, as we look at the structure a little bit of 2 Peter, and as we go into the first two verses, um, we pray, God, that you would give us understanding, and I pray, the Holy Spirit, that you would give me power from on high for your glory, Jesus, I pray, amen. Okay, so let me read a little bit from the Reformation Study Bible. Okay, so this is Peter that wrote this. Um, some scholars would try to wrangle with that, but there's really no reason to disagree. Second Peter must have been written before the apostles' death around A.D. 67 through 68. The reference to his imminent death in chapter 1, verse 14. You see that? Let's look at that. Knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. So, when he says that my earthly dwelling is, uh, is imminently departing, that means he's uh, not long for this world. The end of his life is near. If chapter 3, verse 1 refers to 1 Peter, the date of the composition must be somewhere after uh, 63 to 64. A date between 65 and 67 is therefore plausible. The place of origin of 2 Peter is uncertain. Rome is a likely suggestion given that Peter wrote his first epistle from that city. And a tradition that he was martyred in Rome under Nero. And it was Peter that, tradition says, was martyred uh, upside down on a cross. Because he says, tradition says, he was not worthy to be crucified as his Lord. The letter was written because of false teaching that threatened the recipients. Unlike 1 Peter, this epistle contains little information about the identity of its recipients. If chapter 3, verse 1 refers to 1 Peter, the recipients 
Christians in Asia Minor are the same in both epistles. If chapter 3, verse 1 is not a reference to 1 Peter, but rather to a lost epistle, there is no firm information from which the recipients can be determined. Whoever the original audience was, we are the audience now that get to benefit from the authoritative Word of God. Now, also from a gentleman by the name of Matt Harmon, he says the following. Second Peter and Jude present a fascinating case study in the way that the New Testament authors draw upon the Old Testament for at least three reasons. First, the obvious overlap between these two letters indicates that either one, Second Peter borrowed from Jude, so that's one possibility. Secondly, Jude borrowed from Second Peter, or both borrow from a common source. Although the prevailing view among scholars is the first option, none of the conclusions in this essay depend on a particular conclusion. So either 2 Peter borrows from Jude, Jude borrows from 2 Peter, or both borrow from a common source. If you read 2 Peter and then you read Jude, which is a short letter, you'll see why. You'll see a lot of similarities. Second, both Jude and 2 Peter display an awareness of Second Temple Jewish literature that shows up not only in direct references to such literature, but also potentially in the way that these authors interpret Old Testament texts. Okay, so let's consider an outline. Now, there were several outlines that I looked at, so I tried to con, uh, concise them together. And really, five points or, or five headings for these chapters. The first chapter, the first two verses, obviously, is a greeting. And that's what we're going to go over this evening. The author, the audience, and what he says. And then secondly... Chapter 1, verse 3 through verse 11 is a foundation of godliness or, or of God's grace, divine provision for the Christian life, pursuit of a godly life. Are you being fruitful or are you barren? And what is necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven in verse 10 and 11? And then we see thirdly, an apostle's reminder. An apostle's reminder. Chapter 1, verse 12 through chapter 2, verse 1, we see the function of a reminder, to stir them up, and we need to be stirred up. And the coming of the Lord, based on eyewitnesses, and the coming of the Lord, the second coming of the Lord, is based on the prophetic word. And then we have, thir- uh, fourthly, false teachers. Chapter 2, verse 1 through 22. Their arrival, their character, and their judgment the impact of these false teachers, the judgment of ungodly, and how as the false teachers are judged, impact of false teachers on others. And then fifthly, there's a reminder that the day of the Lord is coming. We'll see that in chapter 3, the coming of the Lord, a new heaven and new earth, and therefore in that chapter, my eschatology very likely will come out robustly, but we'll see. Scoffers doubt his return. God's timing is not our timing in this chapter as well. Godly living in the sight of the future day. Okay, so the greeting for us this evening. Let's just look at chapter 1, 
Follow along with me, if you will. Whatever translation you have. We're just going to look at a portion of text. I thought about reading the whole book, but I said, no, it's evening. Some may not off in the process. Nevertheless, let's just read several verses, beginning in verse 1, 2 Peter. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence and your faith supply moral excellence and your moral excellence knowledge, and in your knowledge self-control, and in your self-control perseverance, and in your perseverance godliness, and in your godliness brotherly kindness, and your brotherly kindness love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see that word knowledge repeated over and over again? That's going to be very important in chapter 1. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance to the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. And we'll stop right there for our reading. So, first point. Know who you are. Know who you are. Peter, Simon Peter, knew exactly who he was. And we see that right out of the gate in verse 1. Simon Peter, in the Greek, it is doulos, a slave of Jesus Christ. Peter does not use the usual Greek term for his name. Instead, he uses, as we would pronounce, Simeon. The NASB says Simon. The ESV, I believe, says Simeon. And Simeon is closer to the Hebrew form of his name. The only other place we find where his name was called Simeon was at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. So his Hebrew name, probably closer to Simeon, which is why it may have been used this way by James before the council, it has a Jewish flavor to it or a Hebrew flavor to it. Cephas is the transliteration of the Aramaic word for rock. Peter wrote this letter, calls himself Simon or Simeon, adding an authentic touch from the apostle. But then, naming his name, he says, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. I believe it was John MacArthur who wrote a book, Slave, Doulos. This demonstrates that he was unequivocally under the authority 
of Jesus. We say servant most of the time because for some of the time, slave has a very negative connotation in our society, in our culture, in our history. Understandably, we would at times say servant. But the better translation is slave of Jesus Christ. He was saying he submitted to Christ's authority and his authority alone. Now, let's go to Romans chapter 6 for a moment. This verse, as we were praying in the boardroom before we came in here this evening, this came to my heart and to my mind, reminding me about being a slave. <clears throat> go to Romans chapter 6, and we're going to come right back to 2 Peter Verse 20 of chapter 6. Paul says it right there. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. When you were a slave of sin, if you're not in Christ this evening, you are a slave to sin. You're a slave to the devil. In some ways, in many ways, he owns you. Because God allows that to happen. But if you're not a slave of Jesus Christ, you are a slave to your sin. You are in chains. You are in bondage. And there is no way out other than Christ. And you are free in regards to righteousness, meaning there is no way you could be righteous. Therefore, what benefit were you now, were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. Verse 22, but now having been freed from sin, no longer a slave to sin, no longer a bondage to sin, and enslaved to God. Now you are a doulos, now you are a slave to Jesus Christ. You derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So one is either a slave to their sin and bondage to sin or a slave to Jesus Christ, which has a very positive and honorable connotation to it, being a doulos, a slave of Jesus Christ. It is an honorable thing to be a servant of Jesus. In the Old Testament, many prominent men who served the Lord were called servants. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and Samuel, and David. In the New Testament, Paul calls himself a slave or a servant. James, and Jude, and Peter for us this evening. It's a term of humility, but it's also a term of of honor. Even though he is an apostle, Peter, first he introduces himself in the letter as a slave. He is not building his resume. He is merely stating a fact, mentioning the obvious. Simon Peter, bondservant, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Let's consider Peter as an apostle. Men do not make themselves apostles. Only God makes men apostles. In order to hold this office, 
one would have to qualify to hold this office. One qualification, I'll just read the text briefly for us, is to have witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 1, verse 22. I'll just read that really quick. No need to turn there. You can write it down. Therefore, it is, verse 21, Therefore it is necessary that the men who have accompanied us all, along, all the time that the Lord Jesus went out and among us, beginning with the baptism of John, until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And then you can also, in your homework, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 through 9. Also, since they're not, man does not appoint apostles, we say, well, well, who appoints apostles? They have to be appointed by Jesus Christ. Jesus alone. And I'll read a text for us from uh, Matthew chapter 10. <clears throat> Jesus summoned his 12 disciples. This is verse 1, in case you're wondering. Jesus sum summoned his first 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now the names of the 12 apostles are these, and then they are named. An apostolic authority is communicated in 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 2. We read this, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. And also, <clears throat> the apostles received special revelation from God. This is in Ephesians. And I'll read that for us as well. Because there are some uh, who like to say that there are capital A apostles today, but they have not witnessed, uh, been a witness, an eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They have not been appointed by Jesus Christ, and they have not received special revelation like the apostles did in the uh, New Testament. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, <clears throat> or verse 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And then in chapter 3, verse 5, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, it has now been revealed to his holy apostles, and prophets in the Spirit. Now, apostle can also mean messenger or representative in a, in a broader sense. We see this in Romans 16, verse 7. My kinsmen and my fellow prisoners who are outstanding among the apostles who also were in Christ before me. We find it translated as messenger in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 23 and Philippians chapter 2, verse 25. But that does not negate the fact that there were apostles appointed by Jesus Christ for a specific time 
for a specific purpose. And for people today to take that title and say that they are apostle so-and-so, it is erroneous to do so. They have not been commissioned by Jesus. They have not witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ, eyewitness uh, of the resurrection. Therefore, their theology is way off. They are in error. Not only did Peter say he was an apostle, but he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. So know who you are. Know who you are. Peter knew who he was, bondservant, an apostle of Christ, no longer a slave to sin, a slave to righteousness. Know who you are in Christ. Secondly, know what you have received. Know what you have received. To those who have received a faith as of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> he says, you have a faith of the same kind, it has equal privileges. So if the audience was Gentiles, he is relating to them even though he is a, a, a Jew. He's saying, you receive the same faith kind as, as we have. Remember, we even looked over today, I think it was in Romans and Ephesians. Uh, Jew and Gentile, or, or Jew and the Greek, the barrier, the wall has been broken down. It is one body of Christ. He says, you have a faith of the same kind. It has equal privileges. Jude says something similar, a common salvation. The faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. The faith we received, you received, he is saying. It is the same. He is saying, we are no better than you. And you are no better than, than we. There are no second-class Christians. Peter's recipients to this letter had the same privileges as he did. Receiving a faith. This is a powerful statement. This is really remarkable because in order to receive a faith, someone has to give that to you. So God gives us the ability to have that faith in him. And God gives us that ability to repent as well. Because repentance and faith, remember, those go together salvifically. When someone is converted, when they are regenerated, then God gives them the ability to have that faith which is necessary for salvation, and it is a divine gift. By grace we have been saved through faith, not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. If we were to say, well, that was my faith to begin with, that, my friend, is a work. No, it's given by God. It cannot be produced by human will, but it is a gift from God to be received. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now this, for a moment, I get to geek out a little bit with some Greek here. A quick, fascinating point on this, uh, this verse. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
The grammar here in the Greek indicates clearly that Jesus is called God in this verse. So not only are we being confronted time and time again in the Gospel of John of Jesus himself claiming to be God, here we have Peter saying this in the Greek. Tom Schreiner helps us to understand this. He says, the structure of the clause accords with the famous rule of G-sharp. If you've ever studied Greek, you know what that is. That when two singular nouns, which are not proper nouns, fall under the same article, which would be like a the, fall under the same article, they refer to the same entity. The God, our, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. If Peter wanted to distinguish Jesus Christ from the Father, he would have inserted an article before the noun Savior. The pronoun are also indicates that only one person, excuse me, that only one person is referred to here. Our God, Jesus, is our God and he is our Savior. The source of God's saving righteousness is Jesus Christ. Now, some scholars hold the opinion that the righteousness here refers to Christ's fairness and justice as his righteousness, while others seem to think it refer, is referring to the vicarious righteousness of Jesus Christ, by which Christians are justified. Either way, it is the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, not of our own. That's where we can land. Either way. Thirdly, know the living God. Know the living God. So Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, this gift you have received, it's the same as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Very similar to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours to the fullest measure. Grace and peace. God has shown his people grace and his peace is abounding on those who have received his grace. The term peace was a common Jewish greeting. It was common in our society for a while. People would say peace or peace out, you know, whatever it is. But it was different, obviously. But this term peace is a common Jewish greeting. The fact that Peter added grace to this greeting is significant. And the order of it is significant as well. Peter uses this greeting as if he is praying that God would multiply his grace and peace upon them. He's praying for their, their welfare, praying that 
God's grace and peace be multiplied upon them. That's how we should pray for one another, really. Think about that. Peter knew that they're standing before God and their progressive sanctification in the Christian life depended on God's grace alone. Peter does not stop, though, with grace and peace. He gives them the means by which this is to take place. And here again, we're brought back to the means that God uses. He says, in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Well, how do we gain this knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord? How, do we, how, do we, how does this happen? Not just knowing God exists, not just knowing about God, Peter makes it clear from the start of this letter, and we see the word knowledge throughout here, several verses, that he makes it clear that we get to know God and have this knowledge of God. One of the many books I've recommended recently, Knowing God by J.I. Packer where he asks some questions, and I have a quote from him here in a moment. He says, what were we made for? The answer, to know God. What aim should we set ourselves in life, he asks. To know God is the answer. What is eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God, he says. Remember what we studied recently? Chapter 17, verse 3, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He asks, what is the best thing in life? Bringing more joy and delight and contentment than anything else. And he says, it is the knowledge of God. Jeremiah 9, I'll read it for us, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness justice and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Listen to Tom Schreiner again. He says, such knowledge is personal and relational, but also involves intellectual content. Grace and peace abound. When believers know more about God and come to know God in a deeper way in the crucible of experience. So we get to know God and we come to know God through his word. And do we not as Christians throughout our lives as we grow, say we've been walking with the Lord 15, 16, 17 years, we have this experience experience of walking with the Lord for that long that somebody who is maybe walking with the Lord for one or two years knows nothing about 
this experience, meaning these trials, these, these crucibles, these things that we go through in our lives. That the new believer does not know anything about. And we can say, yeah, just, just wait a little while. The experience of studying his word, of praying, of sitting under his word. Now, of course, when I say experience, I'm not talking about some woo experience, some weird experience. I'm talking about living, following God, studying his word, digging in his text, getting on our faces before God, sitting under his word, being serious about our walks with Christ, experience through trials as a Christian, as we turn to God continually, and our knowledge of him goes deeper and deeper because we turn to him. And there's times when we say, all I have is Christ. Sometimes that's all we can say. Jesus, you're all I have. You're all I have at this time. I know that. Help me to know you even more during this time. Knowing God, this ability to know God in the experiential way begins, of course, with conversion and grows as we grow. Well, someone may ask the question, how can I know God more? Well, one way to answer it is how much effort do you want to put in to know God in a deeper way and to cultivate a deeper, more intimate communion with him? And I'll end with a quote from J.I. Packer from Knowing God. It's going to be a paragraph or seven, so just hang on. Just kidding. Just making sure everyone's still with me this evening. Okay. He says, a, a simple Bible reader and sermon hearer who is full of the Holy Spirit will develop a far deeper acquaintance with his God and Savior than a more learned scholar who is content with being theologically correct. Now, being theologically correct is very important. We want to be uh, theologically sound. We want to have a theological grid and we want to be accurate in our understanding of the Word of God. But again, he says that the simple developing a deep acquaintance with his God and Savior over time. He also says, And the Lord said to Moses in Exodus thirty-three seventeen, I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. And in Jeremiah, before I formed you, Jeremiah, in the womb I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. And as Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. And I lay down my life for the sheep and my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they shall never perish. Here, God's knowledge of those who are his is associated with his whole purpose of saving mercy. It is a knowledge that implies personal affection, redeeming action, covenant faithfulness, and providential watchfulness towards those whom God knows. It implies, in other words, salvation now and forever as we hinted before, he says. 
What matters supremely, therefore, is not in the last analysis the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that he knows me. Remember the analogy, which is kind of hard to use these days with uh, the president in the White House. You go up to the gate and you say, I know the president, I know the president. And yeah, right, you're not getting in, you're not getting far, you're probably getting taken down. But if the president of the United States comes out and says, I know this person, I know exactly who they are, forget about signing the name and all that stuff, but you follow the illustration. The president comes out and says, I know who this person is. I know him. I know her. They're getting in. They're getting in. The fact that God knows us. I am graven on the palm of his hands. I'm never out of his mind. Think of that. All of my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me, and there is no moment when his eye is off me or his attention distracted from me. That is the God who we know who knows us. We got to know who we are in Christ. Know what we have received from Christ and practically knowing the living God in a deeper way as we continue on in our Christian life. Our brother will come. He'll lead us in our last hymn and then I will pray for us.